Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Hello, everyone. It's the 18th of October and a beautiful sunny day in Warsaw. I'm Kamil Jarończyk, the managing editor of Visegrad Insight, and I'm here with... Wojciech Przybylski, editor-in-chief of Visegrad Insight. Hello. Hello and welcome. Yes, welcome. Well, it's going to be an eventful week this week. Uh, we decided to take three of the most important stories out of our weekly outlook and uh, present it to you all, as well as an update on the... Uh, Council on the Future of Europe uh, and uh, what the European Parliament has been up to. I will only mention that because we are working constantly now on the on the ne- our next foresight uh, uh, report, scenario-based report with uh, voices from Central Europe on the Conference on the Future of Europe. That last week, and indeed, there was a citizens panel uh, on the Europe in the world and migration question in Strasbourg for three days, randomly selected people participated in an exercise uh, in deliberative democracy. Now, there's a lot of criticism as to the how the conference is going and what the format might bring. Mm, the, the discussions of citizens are um, nevertheless part of, well, at least from my point of view, a uh, civic education mission to get people involved, to understand representative democracy, to, to be part of it, and at the same time experiment with all the uh, all the promising uh, tools and techniques of deliberative democracy. We've written uh, about the conference on the future earlier, uh, highlighting the the dangers resulting from from a strong agenda of Viktor Orban and uh, Jarosław Kaczyński. Uh, those two definitely know what sort of future of Europe they want, and not so many people will like that. Nevertheless, because they're uh, they're mobilized and they're well organized, they seem to be having uh, a strong input into the uh, conference. And with Visegrad Insight and with a team of uh, fantastic leaders, influencers, civil society influencers. We've been meeting already at two workshops, uh, working uh, in our regular formats of um, of foresight uh, production on on our next report that will be a shadow report uh, to the conference on the future of Europe to be released early spring and and to empower voices that are in my opinion, maybe even majority voices, but they are trumped by the current elites in Budapest and Warsaw. And speaking about elites in uh, Budapest and Warsaw, the opposition in Hungary actually had their second run of uh, primaries. uh, And in uh, line with our predictions, the third place uh, candidate in the first uh, round, uh, Petr Markizai, actually uh, came out on top over uh, Dobrev. Maybe you can tell us more about that, Wojciech? Yeah, exactly. We spoke about him uh, last week and we endorsed uh, Gergely Karacson for for the move. Um, I think it's an important context now where the opposition as a whole uh, is today. The the block of uh, all the parties that com- that run in the primaries and they want to um, have one one prime minister umbrella um, candidate and uh, also smartly allocate their uh, candidates across the single mandate cons- constituencies uh, have taken lead already from, and that's these are numbers from polled from the early October. So just before the move of Kergi Karachon and, and uh, the final run between uh, Dobrev and uh, Markizai. Now, Markizai, as we said, um, is a is an underdog candidate. Uh, nobody expected him to have a, such a strong run. What is being underlined also is that he spent uh, 
1% of what Fidesz was spending on social media advertising, uh, bashing the opposition, of course, and only 2% of Cla what Clara Dobrev was spending uh, on social media. And, and it seems like he is the dream candidate, the man uh, to, to, to defeat uh, Viktor Orban on a different agenda on a, from coming coming from a, a center right uh, rather than left or center left a, a, a person who has never been in any official um, position in the government in national government coming from a from a municipality outside of Budapest, uh, a local man, a de decent family man with uh, five children, I think, having having strong run against uh, the corrupt practices of Fides, uh, having a clean slate in in terms of uh, any any previous experience in in the government, but still an experienced politician, just a local politician himself. And being very vocal, very vocal, I must say, about um, the hypocrisy of, of Fidesz, Viktor Orban. He is playing this card that it's, it's a double-edged sword for Orban, LGBTQ uh, card where Orban has been attacking uh, gay communities and LGBT uh, people, uh, calling them ideology. Markizai, from his position where he stands, a local Hungarian, um, middle-class man, uh, he speaks on the hypocrisy of Fidesz, um, calling the cars of, of, of them hiding gays among their ranks and, um, you know, uh, providing, you know, the, the demonstrating against the um, hate speech Fidesz is, um, is spreading. And in his speech, uh, in his program, uh, when uh, when Clara Dobrev conceded, he immediately went on saying that in in the Hungary run by the opposition with his leadership as prime minister, there will be no shame if, of, of, of being uh, a gay person, homosexual person, whatever other uh, sexual preference. It's, it's just that he wants to reinstate um, the center. And interestingly so, if you compare it to the strategy of Biden, he was also of course, campaigning against Donald Trump uh, and against the Republican agenda, but he was speaking of the middle. He was speaking of certain sense of normality. And what you could have seen also recently in Czech Republic, you you have seen that the the central right parties won on on tickets of of running politics as not as something I don't know funny business whatever else, but just being decent and serving the people. So I think this is. You know, regardless of the final electoral result, spring next year, this is already some new, something really new in in Hungarian politics, where you have a person um, of that posture, and now with such a strong backing from uh, um, almost all of the opposition parties, uh, to be put forward and lead um, for the elections. And I think this is not only important for Hungary; this is so much important for Poland, because. Uh, from the perspective of Poland, of the opposition, uh, the perspective of the opposition, you have clearly uh, lessons, potential lessons to be learned. And from the side of uh, uh, the government, uh, this is a little bit frightening if in spring next year, Hungary would not be ruled anymore by Viktor Orban because there is Article uh, seven. 7 in the European Union. And this is um, then only one card, uh, one party, or one one country 
to be under this uh, procedure should Hungarian government quickly um, amend the laws and, and, and be able actually to vote um, according to their consciousness, not to the illiberal interests. Speaking of illiberal interests, it's interesting that uh, Prime Minister of Poland, Mateusz Morawiecki, will be heading to Strasbourg um, uh, this week to take part in a parla uh, European Parliament debate on the rule of law in Poland. He being uh, the leader of the government um, in charge of uh, the changing of the uh, laws that uh, led to, to the rulings and uh, the current issues uh, with the rule of law. It will be uh, interesting to see how he um, defends himself, I'm sure. But on the other hand, I'm I'm not waiting for any surprise. We already know the narrative, the, the, the narrative of, Vic, uh, of Viktor Orban and Mateusz Morawiecki. Well, pretty much the same. The, you don't understand us. You are um, you're applying double standards, uh, abusing uh, the treaties, abusing the treaties. So all of that will be uh, heard uh, uh, in Strasbourg from the Polish Prime Minister. And uh, nevertheless, the the penalty these uh, will be applied. Uh, Poland is going to hear now decisions about new fines, uh, actually on Turów coal mine, but uh, that will be uh, expected to be amended also by, um, by additional um, uh, penalties demanded by the Commission and uh, reviewed and, and decided upon by the European Court of Justice. This is, uh, this is I think, a mission of a, of a man, uh, of a politician who uh, goes there for the show in the Polish uh, media rather than convincing the uh, parliamentarians and the politicians uh, in Europe. That uh, that said, I would also underline that it gives an opportunity, of course, while he's there, uh, to speak directly to, to the commission, to speak directly to several uh, politicians who might want to exchange views with him and disregard that he's been lying a number of times on the pretty serious stuff. And um, and he would still try to convince uh, the Commission and the partners in Europe that uh, Poland should not have the EU funds withheld. And this is the statement that comes not only now from Poland, but from the outgoing Chancellor Merkel, as she defended very clearly over the weekend uh, the rights of Hungary and Poland to acquire uh, the EU funds. And, and, and she warned against applying sort of a punitive approach from the European institutions. But, uh, but of course, uh, the, in terms of uh, penalties uh, and, and the fees that Poland for, is, is paying now, or supposed to pay, we are, we're talking actually, but not about the rule of law, but about something completely, a completely different case, right? Yes, um, uh, the tour of mine, um it was uh, voted um, that it should stop um, during the uh, because the Czechs uh, brought uh, the case to the European Court and uh, it decided that during the ruling of uh, on the tour of mine case the mine has to stop uh, um, functioning uh, Poland disregarded did not uh, stop the uh, functioning of the mine. And as with uh, most court procedure, uh, procedures, if you don't listen to the court, uh, then uh, there is a penalty. But how is that penalty is applied already or hasn't been applied? I mean, the, the Polish government said that we're, we have not received as Poland any request for payment yet. Well, it's going to come this week. Uh, the European Commission is actually going to uh, send a formal request for payment of the fines um, for the not closing the tour of mine. And um, that's going to be... an 
another issue this week. Uh, what will be with the payments? Um, uh, the government came out quite strongly saying they're not going to pay anything. They're not doing anything wrong. Um, but there are the treaties. There are the legal obligations. So uh, we'll see who blinks first, the European Commission or Poland. Yes, and it all uh, touches all the sensitive topics, even more sensitive than the rule of law, which is the energy security in Europe, right? The mm-hmm. the, the Turów uh, is about energy production. It provides relatively cheap energy is going to be much more expensive because it's also dirty energy. And uh, as we speak about that, there's a number of political events going on uh, that we should also mention. Yes, um, uh, Poland actually um, turns out to have the cheapest uh, energy currently in Europe, um, but uh, also the dirtiest. Um, uh, Another country that uh, depends a lot on coal is Bulgaria, and over there, the uh, there were actually minor minor strikes, and uh, due to the uh, fear of uh, the closing of the coal mines. So, how many people turned up on the uh, on the protests? Uh, about a thousand miners uh, and workers uh, of a coal uh, fire plant uh, came out uh, to the protest um, to protest um, uh, basically in fear of their job security. Um, as uh, we have uh, know from other attempts um, to switch areas that were dependent on coal, um, usually it doesn't turn out so well for the coal miners. Well, it, it, it seems that this hardens the positions and any political negotiations are going to be much harder, also including the Turov cases, especially we're talking about uh, the uh, budget deficits uh, the Czech Republic is experiencing. As uh, Martin L. writes in our in a new piece that will uh, also show up on our website this this week, Andrei Babish was ready to invest 20 million uh, euro into the Three Cs initiative, uh, otherwise a topic disregarded by Czechs, but he was ready to sign the, the, this on 18th of October, but, but he didn't. Uh, apparently, he's, he's not doing that uh, in, in the view of the budget constraints. And uh, just like budget constraints prevent him from making any um, commitment in, in the regional policy, foreign policy, just as much, I believe, uh, Czech Republic will be hardening its position on the Turov coal mine case, preventing any quick closure on the on the deal unless uh, Poles realize and, and agree uh, to pay pay a lot. But of course, that is not an easy decision to make on the on the Polish side, on the on the Polish government side as well. Gas prices? Yes, um, uh, currently there's a big issue, uh, both with uh, supply, but also w- uh, due to um, uh, financial, but also geopolitical issues, uh, wi- as um, as a lot of the region thought, uh, with the opening of Nord Stream 2. Well, it's not only no- opening of Nord Stream 2, uh, Gazprom has uh, been uh, shortening its supply over the whole year. Uh, thus, the capacity of the of the storages is is at at a minimum, I think, mm. uh, across Europe right now. And then Vladimir Putin was coming to the picture at some conference at a, or an interview, saying that yes, of course, Russia is here to help. But then he didn't, of course, uh, he didn't go with the price for this brotherly help. Mm. And usually, uh, Central European experience tells that it's uh, it's not a cheap price. Yeah, uh, exactly. It isn't. And uh, there have been fears that uh, Ukraine will be cut off uh, and Moldova as well. Uh, Moldova actually requested from Europe um, uh, gas uh, through Romania. But the issue is that Romania also has issues with the ga- gas supplies at the moment. So it's unsure if um, uh, uh, that'll be able to supply. And the only um, uh, 
pipeline that's able to flow from Europe towards Ukraine, uh, so it's called a reverse flow, um, is only through Slovakia, uh, which uh, Prime Minister uh, Hegar of Slovakia has said that he's willing for Slovakia to be part of a European solution if Russia does threaten uh, Ukrainian gas supplies. And he and Slovakia, not even him, it was before his term, uh, Slovakia has delivered uh, previously in 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 such in similar circumstances. But uh, we'll be watching this development as well. And I think that is all for, for the highlights of, of this week. Yep, exactly. They're just highlights. Um, read the full report on our website that comes out every Monday. Yeah. And tell us what you think uh, on uh, social media, on Twitter, or drop us an email. Put a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. That would be so nice. And now let's move to Riga, where we recorded an interview with our special guest. Janeta Wazolinia, I'm Professor of International Relations at the University of Latvia and Chair of the Board of the Latvian Transatlantic Organization. And I hope that Visegrad Inside will become one of those publications we are reading regularly. We are at the Riga conference and we are just impressed that you can organize a, a, a conference a, with real people, person participation and also hybrid format in uh, in the middle of the fourth wave of the pandemic. Can you tell us why is it worth it and, and what does it take to, to organize such an event? I'll probably start uh, a little bit from historical perspective because the Riga conference was organized first time in 2006 and it was the year when NATO summit took place here in Riga. And since then it was tradition and already uh, there is uh, a very wide Riga conference community which is expecting every year in fall to come to Riga and to discuss different security related issues. And last year we had uh, the first real challenge because we were preparing for hybrid conference and suddenly there was a lockdown. And in a very short period of time, we had to be ready to proceed with online conference. And I should say that if I look at our neighbors, North and South, very many think tanks canceled their conferences. But we decided not to give up. And we organized uh, the Riga conference online for two and a half days. Uh, there were 103,000 original viewers of the conference. Mm -hmm. And one of the panels was uh, watched by half a million people. And then we realized that indeed those online conferences all also has its value. Uh, but you need good topics, uh, speakers who are committed and who are ready to share their ideas uh, with uh, international society. And when we were preparing conference this year, then actually we were already very well armed. We knew what does it mean to go online. Uh, we didn't know how to combine and present a balanced version of the conference, but we were prepared. So uh, we are very happy that today at least we have uh, about 100 people here in uh, the hall and we could keep our network, we could embrace, uh, not physically, but at least by our sites, our friends, and, and, and to enjoy presence. So it was difficult, it took a lot of efforts, but it was really worth doing it, uh, because uh, the spirit of Riga Conference uh, is alive, 
It's here and people are still uh, very keen to discuss uh, security matters. As we see, and I have to say, I am impressed by the level of precaution taken also on the national level. Simply the government just announced uh, additional restrictions, which must have uh, put uh, constraints on you. But at the same time, everybody here in the uh, National Library, where the venue of the conference usually takes place. Every few, everybody is quite, well, uh, happy, I would say, with, with the potential of, of, of the meeting, of network, and topping on, talking on these important issues. But tell us a little bit more about the, the, the themes. Uh, what's, what is the focus of the Riga uh, conference in general, and in particular this year? We usually built um, the content of Riga conference on two pillars. Uh, one pillar is a traditional pillar, a classical one, <laughs> which makes Riga conference uh, different from other conferences. And then there are always those new kids on the block <laughs> themes which are deriving from current affairs in, in, in the world. Uh, as far as those classical themes are concerned, this usually is EU-related one or another topic. And this year it's strategic autonomy and uh, Green Deal. Uh, then we always have uh, at least few panels on uh, security and NATO issues. And uh, now we have a very good reason to organize a panel on future of NATO because strategic concept is on its way. And there is also always a panel where ministers of defense are discussing their current issues. And also we are having one on, on, on um, uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, uh, and then, of course, Russia is another topic which is always part of the debate. Uh, if we look at those new themes, which uh, is something original this year, then we have uh, a panel on Afghanistan. And since Latvia was contributing to ISAF and also uh, development cooperation projects, so we consider that we cannot avoid this topic. It, it should be there. Uh, another new theme which we added uh, last year and this year is related to women, peace and security. And since Latvia is getting prepared for, <laughs> for security council position and, and, and uh, voting will take place uh, relatively soon, so Latvia is also getting into the mood of the UN uh, topics. And also technology is something which is uh, also being a new topic uh, in, in, in our conference. So I think that uh, we really covered very wide variety and will cover very wide variety of topics. Uh, we always wanted some more, but there are certain limits which we cannot uh, step over. And I have to say I find the Riga conference always so precise and sharp in, uh, in, in, uh, in showing how these topics are relevant for a particular situation, of course, of Latvia. This is uh, essentially, you would say, a real foreign policy instrument of, of, of Latvia to bring in uh, the, these topics and the people who come with them together in, in Riga to show them the perspective and not to forget to mention also the, the, the beautiful uh, city of Riga, which is unique yeah, and always so, so hospitable to, to us. 
I, I was thinking if you could just give us a flash of some, some highlights of who is this year, who are the speakers who actually came, who made the trip to, 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 to be with us. Uh, there are already our traditional speakers, which come quite often. <clears throat> like, for instance, uh, this morning's opening session was chaired by Edward Lucas, and he is a very <laughs> good and, and, and long-standing friend of Ziga Conference, as well as Julian Lindley French, uh, who is well-known uh, defense uh, specialist, uh, Ben Hodges, uh, and they both together, Lucas and, and Ben, uh, they wrote a report on security in the Baltic Sea region, which is uh, uh, a very relevant topic. Uh, then, if we are looking from new speakers, then Mark Leonard uh, here was first time, and we are very happy to have him with us. Also, Frederica Mogherini uh, was a new face in the Riga conference. She, of course, in her position as high representative, she was here uh, several times, but not as a speaker at the conference. Uh, as far as also traditional speakers, it's... Uh, uh, Vice President of European Commission, Valdis Dombrovskis, who is Latvian. Mm, uh, but at the same time, he comes as European Commission representative here. Mix of, of, of different uh, speakers. Yeah, indeed. A global and European focus in, uh, in a nutshell. And uh, really hard to find all those great minds put together in, in uh, any other conference that at least I know in the region and also in and across Europe. So thank you very much also for hosting us. We, we, we launched today uh, in the breakfast session our, uh, our report with you on, on the future, on the road to the three C's, potentially three C's civil society forum as Latvia is taking over the presidency uh, next year. Yes, thank you. And now I could say, see you next year in Riga. <laughs>